a number of parents have been very concerned about their children contracting the virus in school. Having this vaccine, this will give both the kids, parents, and teachers peace of mind. Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang for our weekly coronavirus update. Bill and Fred, uh, thank you again for joining us. We have a lot to talk about today. Uh, when we concluded our podcast last Friday, the CDC had not yet uh, issued their approval. And uh, now we're, we seem well on our way to um, approval and authorization of vaccines for uh, children 5 to 12. So I thought we'd start with those two topics and get your views on it. So the, the, as we know when we talked last week, the FDA ad, uh, Advisory Commission on, uh, Committee on Vaccines had recommended approval, and the FDA did, in fact, authorize amending the, authorize, the emergency use authorization so that uh, the vaccine could be used as a booster. And we talked about the, when the, the booster could be applied. Uh, the CDC's Advisory Commission Committee on Immunization Practices validated that, no significant changes to that. So basically, it's, it's anybody who is over 65 or has a risk factor, either a medical risk factor or an exposure risk factor, which is very important, um, is, is recommended to have a booster if you got the, one of the mRNA vaccines, Pfizer or Moderna. But then anybody is recommended to get a booster if you had the Pfizer vaccine. And in fact, there's a, I'm sorry, the J&J vaccine, yes. And um, in fact, there is a lot of discussion that in some, in some areas there's a consideration that should that actually be considered a, a two-shot primary series. In other words, if, if in order to be considered fully vaccinated, you need to have two doses of the J&J vaccine. That has not been done, but that is, that is actively under discussion. So then the, the second major development was that, the again, the, the same FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, they will be meeting next week to discuss the uh, Pfizer vaccination in the 5 to 11-year-old age group. Um, on Tuesday, the Advisory Committee, they voted without objection to recommend that authorization. Let me start over on this segment. I segment, I, I messed this one up. So the second major development is that the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee met earlier this week to address vaccination for the 5 to 11-year-old age group. And on Tuesday, they, this advisory committee voted without objection. There was one abstention, but they voted to recommend the authorization in this 5 to 11-year-old age group. Um, next week, the CDC Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices is scheduled to meet, and it is expected that they are also going to take this up. And typically, the CDC um, director will sign off on their recommendation. So we could expect that by roughly the 8th of next month, so not this coming Monday, but the following Monday, uh, we will be able we'll start doing vaccinations for children ages 5 to 11. And that's in addition to 12 to 18 that were authorized a couple of months ago. So that what that's going to mean is all children except for the youngest um, that are in school 
are going to be uh, eligible for vaccination. That's going to be a big, big change as we get towards second semester, uh, because as you know, the vaccines, the Pfizer vaccine is the only one that's being considered. It's three weeks between the two vaccinations, and then it's another two weeks until you're considered fully vaccinated. And if you just run the timeline on that, what that means is for the Thanksgiving holiday, is kids won't, nobody, no kids that age will be considered fully vaccinated, but by Christmas, and then certainly by the start of the, the new school semester, um, many, many children will be fully vaccinated uh, going into the second semester. Yeah, I think this is a very important development. And in talking to parents, uh, what this will mean for those that uh, a number of parents have been very concerned about their children contracting the virus in school or when they're playing with their, their friends. And having this vaccine will dramatically reduce the risk. It's a 90%, 91% efficacy for symptomatic disease protection. Um, this will uh, give both the kids, and parents, and teachers peace of mind and that these individuals, these kids will be protected. And I think that's very important. One of the problems we've gotten into is a lot of people have underestimated the number of children that have been infected. And it's I, my understanding, and Bill, you can correct me, but I think approximately one third of children in the United States have been, who are in school have become infected. And that's a very significant number. And although the complications are relatively rare, there have been severe cases of multi-systems uh, inflammatory disorder and there have been some deaths, not a huge number, but any death in a child is devastating. And, and we really uh, should never find that acceptable. No, but the other part of the consideration is while we want to make sure that we're avoiding all of these bad potential bad outcomes, we don't want to be causing bad outcomes because while those things Fred just uh, listed can happen, the reality is most kids do very well. In fact, many kids probably have had COVID and we never knew it because it was just another sniffles that they had. But fortunately, in this, this authorization run-up studies, they had no, zero um, significant adverse events. Now, this is not a huge study. There's only a you know, few thousand kids that were involved in the study. So watching when we start getting millions of kids immunized and watching what happens in the post-authorization monitoring is going to be of critical importance, but so far so good. The, the, the bar is very, very high for children. The same reason we don't want to have children to have bad outcomes, we don't want to have them have a, a uh, serious adverse reaction to a vaccine. So fortunately, so far, the vaccine is clearing that bar. Bill, I, I, I completely agree. And one of the reasons we think that there haven't been as many side effects due to the vaccine is you're using one third the dose that were used for adults. And I think that is uh, very important. Um, it seems like it's the second dose after the second dose that young uh, men in, in the age 12 to, to six to uh, 17 year old actually had some uh, myocardial inflammation. And, but the good news is with that group was they were very responsive to corticosteroids and the course was very short, two to three days. 
and very rarely were there permanent was there any permanent damage to the heart i listened carefully to some of the interviews given by the doctors on the fda panel uh, that approved um, both the booster as well as um, as they're examining the benefits for children and they spoke i thought very eloquently about the calculus that they deploy about you know risks and benefits and I know you have spoken about that as well for all age groups. And uh, they also um, spoke about how the FDA's mission is not to take uh, a review of a snapshot in time in terms of what the data is saying. And you know, as both of you said, it's a bit you know the the data set is a bit limited for the the youngest age group. But how the FDA continues to track the data, monitor that, et cetera. Maybe you can um, speak so because I think these are important points for the audience to understand, you know, sort of the calculus and, and how uh, approval is weighed and then also how it continues to be monitored uh, by not just the FDA, but I guess also, you know, other um, health bodies such as the CDC. David, this is actually a kind of interesting point because the FDA is mandated to look at the, the uh, any, any biological or uh, medication and what is the effect on the individual and do a risk-benefit assessment for the individual. And so what they're looking at is they look at what is the risk if somebody gets COVID and what are the possible uh, diseases, bad outcomes that they could have if they get COVID. And they compare that against the risks that they are calculated from the, from the studies and from also looking at the experience with uh, other age groups with the vaccine and they just and they do a comparison so it's very much as, as i understand the fda process it's very much at the individual that they're looking the cdc however has a different um, remit they are charged to look at the public health so certainly they have to look at the effect on the individual but they also are the ones that have to say you know, like if we take in, there's been other con some somewhat controversial vaccinations, uh, H HPV vaccine that for young males has almost almost no benefit, direct benefit for the male, but the public health value of it is immense, and the CDC is charged to look at the public health value also. So that's why it's very useful to have these two bodies that have different. Point, they're, they're this very similar uh, memberships to their advisory committees, uh, but very different uh, um, lenses that they're looking at the biological or the, uh, the medication through. Yeah, and I think in both, uh, both settings, uh, the vaccine is uh, the, the risk-benefit ratio, the, the benefit far outweighs the risks. And uh, with the, regards to the Delta variant, it, although there haven't been good published studies about household contacts and the likelihood that if you if a child comes and brings uh, the Delta variant into the house, what percentage of individuals will become infected? Uh, based on the India experience and a number of uh, friends of mine whose kids came home, uh, it's almost 90% of family members uh, became infected if, if, if when an index case comes into a, a household. So uh, that's a tremendous benefit if in that house there is someone who is a, a significant risk of immunocompromised or over age 65 
And we're seeing that particularly over age 80, even if you're vaccinated, there's a significant risk of, of death if you are exposed again uh, in large doses uh, to the Delta variant. And can you guys speak to the second part of my question, which is how uh, the FDA is not taking a snapshot in time, but continues to monitor the data and to con continues to assess both uh, safety and efficacy? Well, sure. Traditionally, the FDA has used the VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Event, uh, Adverse adverse Reaction Monitoring, I'm going to blow that, V-A-E-R-S, Vaccine Adverse Event Response System. I apologize for that. Um, and what that is is a voluntary reporting system. So it's often been criticized in that it is much more of a passive system. So some a, a physician or other treating provider actually has to take the time to make a report if, if they observe a problem with one of their patients having had a vaccine. In the case of the COVID vaccination, however, there have been multiple very uh, systematic positive outreaches by uh, both state health departments and the CDC to get a much, much more broad base. There, no one, no one would say they're picking up every adverse um, event, but they're picking up enough and they have both numerator and denominator data that they can, they have a good idea of what the actual rates are of these. And these various vaccine advisory committees, both at FDA and CDC, are, they are reviewing the data on an ongoing basis. And if they saw a problem, they would make the change. Yeah. One, one of the examples is the abnormal thrombosis particularly of central nervous system vessels, uh, was picked up by the VARES very quickly with a relatively low signal. And uh, that was with the J&J &J and also was picked up in, in Europe in the, in the AstraZeneca. But what that tells you, it's a very, a very sensitive tool, uh, particularly now where everybody is attuned to the issue of side effects. And, and a lot of people know about the VARES uh, particularly, I find those that are anti-vaccine uh, are always uh, pointing to the VAERS because they can they can go in and look at the raw data. The problem with the raw data is that um, when you vaccinate a huge population, there will be uh, various diseases in that population that have no relation to the vaccine. But if you're not sophisticated in analysis, um, you'll say, oh, the vaccine caused that. Uh, and, and that's where it's really important, the, the analysis, the statistical analysis required to prove or to suggest cause and effect uh, has to be very carefully performed. David, one other issue that I'd like to address just because I'm getting a lot of questions about it, and um, I'm hoping Fred may be able to comment on this one too, is Delta Plus. Um, there's a lot of you know, people start hearing about this Delta Plus or uh, it's AY.4.2 um, that is causing a, a about 10% of all COVID infections in the UK right now. And there's a question of is the persistent elevated level of COVID illness in the UK due to this AY.4.2 or Delta, Delta Plus? Um, so I, I've spent some time looking at that just today, actually, and there's, there is no evidence whatsoever that it causes more severe disease 
or that it uh, is escaping vaccine coverage at all. It's about, from that standpoint, it seems to be identical to Delta. There is evidence that it is slightly less than 10% more infectious than Delta. But at 10%, that's typically not a level that is going to cause a huge difference. It's just, what it's gonna do is just slowly replace the original Delta, will be replaced with the Delta AY.4.2 as the, as the predominant um, uh, strain that is in circulation. So nothing looks that scary about this one at this point, but if you go into the news, you're gonna see lots of scary stories out there. I don't think that we should be, we need to be, it's like so many things, you wanna watchfully wait for it, uh, make sure that nothing is, um, is changing, but so far it does not look like this is a, a dangerous variant at all. Yeah, and uh, I'm just curious, uh, Bill, because I have friends who are in London and they're talking about sort of how everybody is interacting. It's almost like uh, COVID is over uh, completely. Um, and I'm just curious whether part of what you're seeing might be related to, um, you know, what I'll refer to as aggressive normalcy. Oh, the, very much so. It's not, this is not, the increased case rates in the UK are not due to AY.4.2. They're due to people living their lives. Yeah, I, I think that pubs are probably one of the perfect sites for spreading uh, spreading the virus. And we all know that uh, those in Great Britain love their pubs. And they're there drinking without masks, uh, talking, singing, uh, creating aerosols everywhere. And the Delta variant uh, really is much more infectious than the original and even if you have the vaccine, if there's one person in that bar that's unvaccinated, um, they could, they can, there can be breakthrough infections as a consequence. And I, I think the Delta Plus just happened to be at the right place at the right time. Um, it probably is, it's not as significantly worse than the standard Delta. And it's more of a coincidental effect rather than uh, really dominating the way the Delta variant did when you saw a very rapid rise and it went from 5% to 20% to 80% within a very short period. And that's not what's happening with the, the, this Delta Plus variant. Okay. Uh, I want to switch gears just a little bit with uh, both of you because we've uh, spoken. Obviously, there's a biological aspect to this pandemic, but there's also political, informational and psychological. And we're seeing some things play out right now. I don't want to get into the politics. It's, it's you know, we're, we're agnostic on this um, podcast, except as to what the data actually shows, whether it's in terms of the, uh, the spread of the disease or the efficacy of the vaccine and the safety. But what is happening now it's, it is um, interesting. A number, at least here in New York, there's a vaccine mandate we'll we'll see what the what happens to the compliance rates but obviously there are a number of challenges that continue in court and even people who are vaccinated um, have uh, a certain degree of solidarity with people who choose not to be vaccinated and you're seeing this play out in some of the union representation and things like that and Fred I'm not picking on your state but uh, before this podcast you and I were noting 
that uh, some people um, in political office go unnamed, not, not important, are actually uh, reaching out in Florida and say, you know, come on down here where there is no mandate. And I'm just sort of curious because there are intelligent people on the non-vaccination side. Um, they're reaching their conclusions for whatever reason. But I'd, I'd be interested because you you have focused on vaccine rates and you know now we're getting into the area of people getting a booster. How is this all going to play out, do you think? Well, I, I, I am very concerned about this trend. And, um, you know, one of the problems is that it appears that people are choosing uh, what they call freedom over actual safety to themselves. We know that my understanding from listening to news that that 60% of deaths among uh, policemen in the New York area has been due to COVID-19. There, it's, it's the leading cause of death. And yet a significant percent of these police officers are ignoring that really important and frightening statistic and insisting they should be free to choose not to be vaccinated. The other concern I have is that um, those that work in, in, in policing and those that are emergency responders and, and fire department, they come to people that are in distress and have to help them. If they are carrying the virus when they come to help them, they could actually kill them. So um, it's, if, if you want, if your goal is to help people and protect people, then I would think that you would want to become vaccinated so you never would give the virus to the people you're trying to help. So from my standpoint, the mandate is a logical uh, extension to convince, every, to really insist that everyone do the right thing when it comes to protecting the public and protecting uh, their all of all of their fellow workers, but Bill, you you uh, have a little bit different take on this. <laughs> I, I do. I think we have we have no there's uh, no disagreement between us on the importance of vaccine and the value of vaccine. Um, I think that a lot of the the concerns that people have back about vaccines. So it's important to listen to these concerns. But when you step back dispassionately and look at the risks on both sides of the equation, I just, I, and I've looked at this very in depth, I just don't understand how you can look at the risks on both sides and come up with a conclusion that the vaccines are not beneficial for almost everybody. Yes, there's going to be a few people that should not get the vaccine, but that's a really tiny number. My, the, the issue that I have is, is that, I, I, that what we've seen over, over history um, is that when you mandate vaccines, you, there are a lot of people who actually, you know, they they're become less likely to get vaccinated when you use a, a mandate as opposed to a um, uh, educational program, um, incentive-based program. You, you try to bring people along. You, know, you say, look, I understand what your concerns are. Let's talk about what my concerns are as the, as the, you know, the head of the department or whatever it may be, and the reasons why we need you to get vaccinated. And then take an outcomes-based approach. You know, if you say that, hey, look, we're, 
we can't have you working in our emergency room if you're still vaccinated. It's not, if you're not vaccinated, but we'll find something else for you to do. Um, you know, it's like you said, you worry that you have police officers that are, or uh, first responder, medical first responders that are gonna be going out there and they're gonna be working face to face up close and personal with people and could possibly transmit the vaccine to them. Well, under the, the virus to them. Well, then take them out of those positions for a period of time. There, eventually, people are you know, most people are going to come around, um, and I think that that doing an, a kind of an outcomes-based approach as opposed to a um, you know, upfront mandate is in the long run going to have a, a better effect. One of the big concerns right now, looking at New York City specifically, is that the that all leaves and vacations for police, fire, um, emergency, uh, EMS, and sanitation workers have now been canceled as of Monday because they know that they're going to be losing between a quarter and a third of their of their workforces. So they're going to have to make everybody else work harder. So the second the second order effects and higher order effects of having the mandate for vaccination is going to go much, much farther beyond the number of people who would be injured by potentially infected workers because we're not going to have enough cops, firefighters, emergency responders, and, and sanitation workers out on the streets. Yeah, so, Bill, I don't want to lose uh, the thread of that last point, which is important. Um, this whole pandemic has involved cost-benefit analysis and um, I think you guys have been particularly mindful of it. And uh, that includes the costs of um, developmental issues of kids going to school, the loss of jobs, the loss of productivity, um, et cetera. And the point you're making here, I just wanted to underscore it for the audience, is that basically if, in fact, um, 20 or 25 percent of the police, fire, sanitation workforce does not show up in a municipality, that creates its own set of dangers, risks, and, you know, potential for loss of, uh, of life and damage to people. So um, this is a very, very complex problem. Uh, at some point, maybe an economist will receive a Nobel Prize for ability to measure all the factors. Um, in a pandemic and uh, vaccine rollouts, but uh, that was a very important point. Let me, um, in, in the few minutes we have remaining, uh, I'd love to get your views because I think something is changing with respect to uh, vac vaccines for 5 to 11, 11 to 17 or 18, and those demographics. And that is, this is very informal by me, but, but I've had a chance to you know have enough conversations. Um, the conversation about whether to be vaccinated or not and the administration of the vaccine is very often taking place uh, between the, I'll call it the young adult or child, and his or her pediatrician. And that's a very different conversation than what we've been having with adults. And I'd like to get your thoughts about, um, you know, whether that makes a difference. We talked about the loss of a personal relationship with physicians as part of you know modern medicine, uh, at least in this country, and how that's had a um, you know a negative impact on on people and you know sort of how they care for themselves. But there seems to be a very different dynamic going on uh, involving uh, families, 
their children and the pediatricians and just any thoughts you might have on that well i'm a family doc and so that the whole idea of that relationship is still critically important and i think the pediatricians and i know my my colleagues are pediatricians and the their pediatric nurse practitioners and pediatric PAs that work with them, they do still have that relationship. Um, and part of it is because they, they see kids, you know, as babies are seeing them every couple of months. And then even as the kids get older, they're seeing them at least typically once a year, maybe once every two years. Um, so they do have this, this personal relationship they, they develop with the kids and the parents. So I think that that is very important. But what that also means is that one of the most important things that CDC and the health departments can be doing is outreach to these pediatricians to make sure, pediatricians, pediatric nurse practitioners, pediatric PAs, to make sure that these people are have their questions answered. I'd like to say that they're on board, but I think we're talking about professionals, it's really answering their questions and leading them to be, to be on board. Um, that's, that is, to me, the most important thing that, that they could be doing right now to get the kids vaccinated. Because remember, we're still, as a country, we're at less than 60% of the country fully vaccinated. I think the latest numbers are 50, actually, I can tell you here in a second, I think it's 52%, or 56.2%, 57.6% uh, is the latest number of fully vaccinated. When we add in the, these kids, and if we can get a, a high percentage of them, kids five to five to twelve are about seven percent of the um, population. If we could get another five percent, five six percent, and suddenly now we're up to sixty-five-ish percent of the population vaccinated, well, that's the level at which Israel and Japan have started to see what you could say is effects of herd immunity that we're that we're not seeing in the U.S. yet. So that could be a huge help. Yeah, pediatricians, I actually talked to one just two days ago. And what they say is they're, they, they have to address this. They've had to address this with other vaccines, uh, the influenza vaccine, the Hib vaccine, multiple vaccines. So they are used to having this conversation with the parents and the children. And the uh, bill has alluded to this. You can't lecture to them and say they have to get it. You have to convince them and you have to be very respectful and listen to their concerns, be empathetic and point out the advantages of the vaccine uh, and make it a teaching moment and not an ordering moment. And, and so the good news is pediat pediatricians are used to doing this and have actually developed a good skill set for communicating with parents and children to advance the use of the COVID-19 vaccine. And, and of course, I would be remiss if I didn't say not just pediatricians, but the family docs that are out there also. I, I, I get shot by my colleagues for not saying Here, Hear, 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 <laughs> absolutely. And internists too. <laughs> well, they're not saying too many kids though, <laughs> but they need to do all the rest no, of No, that's true. For the, but for the adults, they yes, have to exactly. have yes. the same conversation. Uh, very enlightening, and again, I'm, uh, what I was trying to tease out of all of you is um, that the messenger matters in these instances, and when there's a relationship based, a pre-existing relationship based on trust, it's a different conversation. And um, as you rightly said, um, this is not a, um, you have to listen to people, 
you can't tell them what they have to do. You have to explain um, calmly the, um, the potential benefits and the risks around things so that they can make, so that people are comfortable with the decision. So in any event, uh, guys, thank you very much. I want to give the audience a little bit of a tip off. I'm going to be leaning in uh, with Fred and Bill uh, to start to pull together uh, lessons from the pandemic uh, because both of them have, um, being the sage uh, physicians that they are, they know this is uh, not going to be a one-time event and quite frankly when it occurred it was not the first of its kind. Uh, and there are important lessons to learn and important lessons to remember and incorporate so that uh, next time we can be better prepared and uh, obviously be in a better position uh, to respond and respond uh, more quickly and with greater efficacy and uh, obviously avoid some of the mistakes that we've incurred uh, during this now almost two years. So Bill and Fred, thanks so much. I look forward to the continued conversation and I know you'll continue to monitor the data uh, for us uh, over the next week and any uh, new breakthroughs. So thanks again. Stay safe. Thank you, David. Thanks, David. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Both doctors are part of the RAIN Expert Network. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Sign up for our coronavirus solution and get critical information on the COVID-19 pandemic delivered daily. Visit us at RAINNetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E-Network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.